So I think we've all heard these faith teachers that are out there, and they use faith as a means to get your own will accomplished. You know, if I just believe enough, then I can get that Rolls Royce. Or if I believe enough, I will be healed. And and they have this thing like, no negative confessions. I don't want to hear anything negative. And if you say a negative word, that's going to change everything. As if, as if we had that much power. They believe that if you have any problems, deficits, difficulties, sicknesses, and diseases, it is because you have not truly harnessed the power of faith. You do not have enough faith or great enough faith, powerful enough faith, or that your faith is inferior to their faith. You've got an inferior faith. I just have superior faith. Recently, I talked to a young woman who heard a Bible study on Job by one of these faith teachers. And this faith teacher said that Job was responsible for every trial he went through, for the sores and the blisters on his body, for losing his children, for the uh, robbery of all that he owned, that he was responsible for it because he lacked faith. And He lacked faith in that he offered a sacrifice for each one of his children, which was a negative confession. Because he was saying, my children are going to sin, so I'm going to offer a sacrifice. This faith person said this was a declaration of unbelief. It was a negative confession. Because instead of saying, I don't need a sacrifice because my children will never sin and they won't sin, which would be to say a blessing and a covering over them, he assumed they would sin. Obviously, this faith teacher has never heard Judge Judy because Judge Judy says, he's a teenager. Let me tell you one thing about a teenager. If their mouth is moving, they're lying. These faith, so-called faith teachers teach that faith is a divine exemption or deliverance from the hardships of this world. Hebrews 11 verses 24 through 40 are the best rebuttal and the greatest evidence that that is not at all the case of faith. If this chapter teaches us anything, it teaches us that faith is a costly choice, that it always contains a crucible. You know, I was telling somebody my notes and they're like, what is a crucible? Now, I was raised with Bible words, so I just take it for granted that everybody knows what a crucible is. But it would be like the mint or the machinery that makes a coin, you know, that the gold goes into, is melted down, crushed, then, then you know, stamped with the image and comes through. It's the process by which a, a pot is, you know, the clay is 
formed and goes into the kiln and comes out glazed and beautiful. The crucible, it's the fire. It's the refining fire, the crucible. But faith contains a crucible. It will always be refined and purified. And thirdly, it constantly looks to the crown of Christ. Christ, the Messiah, is the reason for the crown. And faith looks always to Jesus. Faith is costly. Jesus said in Luke 14, verses 27 through 30, verse 33, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Faith costs. It costs. I once heard an interview with Rosario Butterfield. She was a former professor of English and women's study at Syracuse University, and she is the author of An Unlikely Convert. I highly recommend that book. And when she began to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and she knew God was real by the witness of a pastor, a church, and through her own personal reading of the word of God, she came to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. She realized that to follow Jesus would cost her everything. It would cost her her career, her reputation, the esteem of her colleagues, her lesbian relationship, and her identity and popularity. So she went to the church that Sunday, so close to conversion, but so angry that it was going to cost her to become a Christian, that she decided to go up almost defiantly to different people in the church and say, what did it cost you to be here? What did it cost you to be here? Because sometimes we think I alone had to pay a cost. Nobody else had to pay a cost. But Jesus told us faith is costly. It will cost you everything. When she interviewed these different people, the first one said, it costs me my marriage. My husband said, if I was going to walk with Jesus, he didn't want to be married to me. Another said, it cost me my career. I couldn't stay in the career I was and exploit people the way I was doing to make money. I had to leave my career. Another said, it cost me my family. My brothers, my sisters didn't want anything to do with me. Yesterday, I was interviewing um, Debbie Kerner Retino. She was one of the very first um, hippie musicians to come to Jesus and phenomenal. She and her husband also did the Salty albums that your kids have probably listened to or maybe some of you younger people listen to. But as I was interviewing her, she was 
or she is Jewish. And when she received Jesus as her Messiah, her father held a funeral for her and said, you are now dead to me. It cost her the relationship of her family for a time. But she knew Jesus was everything. As Rosario continued to interview people in this little church in New York, she found others that said, it cost me my best friend. It cost me my group of friends. Another said, it cost me my lifestyle. I couldn't continue the lifestyle I had. And my whole lifestyle changed. When my Aunt Isi listened to Amy Simple McPherson on the radio, was one of the first radios, and because she was married to a very wealthy man who was an architect in San Diego, they had gotten this radio, and she was listening to it one day. And the voice of Amy Simple McPherson came over it and talked about Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. My aunt had never heard the gospel before. And as she listened, and when Amy Simple McPherson gave the, the, the call to salvation, my aunt got down on her knees and she gave her life completely to Jesus Christ. She was 23 years old, gave her life fully to Jesus Christ. When her husband came home and she told him about her decision, he said to her, it's either Jesus or me, but you can't have both. And as a new Christian, she tried for a time to have both. And finally, he gave her an ultimatum. I told you, Jesus or me. And she made the decision, the hard decision, to give herself fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, knowing that this meant the end of her marriage and that she would never be married again. Knowing that it would cost her the house she lived in, the uh, reputation that she had in San Diego as the wife of this successful architect. She knew the cost, but the decision to have Jesus as best friend and savior and constant companion was worth it all. There is a cost. It cost Moses' parents. They hid him for three months because they saw, verse 23, he was a beautiful child. That word beautiful means more like, oh, he's so good looking. We can't get rid of him. It's more than that. Beautiful has this quality of divine. They saw a divine call on him. They saw something so attractive a spirituality, an anointing already on his life. And so they hid him for three months. I, I just have to say this. The other day, my son called and he said, Mom, I'm just calling to say thank you for being my mom. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for, you know, raising me. Uh, with Bible stories. Thank you for making Christianity so irresistible. And he went on, and I'm, of course, you know, I'm a mess. I'm crying. My mascara is on my neck. I am just absolutely, it's the call you're waiting for. You know, from the time they're born, you know, their children, the, the word says, her children will 
rise up and call her blessed. It's a future event. And you just wait for it. You wait. You know, they have to have children before they can do this. Before they have children, they're like, yeah, you were there. Then they have children. And they have the children that test them. Then the call comes. Mom, thank you. And I remember I just said to him, Char, I knew from the day that you were born that you were special. I knew that God's anointing was on you. I was worried that I wasn't up to the task. How do I raise this anointed boy with a call on his life? And I used to say, oh, Lord, don't let me blow it. And then I had to tell him about all the times I blew it. Yo, I'm just making this confession. Char, you were such an amazing yet hyperactive child. You know, he was the type of child that if you took him out, he would run away because he loved to hear his name announced over the loudspeaker. So it was always whether I was at the mall or at the market. In fact, it got to a place where Brian said, I don't know that you should take him publicly without like a chain, you know, handcuffs, because it would be, will the mother of Charlo Broderson please come to the front of the store constantly? Every time I went out in the mall, he's like, did you hear that? That's my name. I'm famous. <laughs> Moses' parents made the conscious decision to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29, Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than men. Whenever the will of man or the edict of man comes in conflict to God's word, God's will, we ought to obey God rather than men. Ordered by the Pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew children. Moses' mother chose instead to hide her newborn, build an ark for his son, and then place him among the bulrushes of the Nile and then give him over to Pharaoh's daughter. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? This is by faith. You know, some of us have trouble just giving our children over to college, to releasing them. She had to take this beautiful anointed child, place him in a basket she made, and put him in the Nile River where there are crocodiles. Put him in the Nile River, and then the very house that she was hiding him from is the very house that he was taken into, raised in, and protected by. Moses' mother and father did this by faith. It wasn't a natural thing to do. It was extraordinary. But they believed that God would protect him. They were not giving him to the Nile. They were not giving him to Pharaoh's house. They were giving their beautiful anointed child to the Lord. 
they were saying, Lord, even as Abraham with the sacrifice of Isaac, you are better able to protect my child. You are better able to work in my child than I am. Um, Cynthia, Izel, and I were in leaders meeting and we were being reminded of the time when our two children um, were just about as far from Jesus as possible. And we, we began to pray when we realized how far they were. We began to pray together with a group of women for them to come back to Jesus. And God did bring them both back to Jesus. Glory, hallelujah. But at the time, I remember Cynthia coming into the prayer meeting saying, I had the best lecture for my son. I mean, God gave me just this eloquent, powerful thing. I was just waiting for him to come home because I was going to give him this lecture. It was so good. And she said, the Lord said, you're not to give him that lecture. You're not to say this. You can pray this, but I don't want you to say this. And she said, why, Lord? And he said, because I can say it so much better. And he'll hear me, but he won't hear you. We give our children over to the Lord by faith. Faith. Lord, I birthed this child. I raised this child. But he's making decisions. He's in the wrong house, Lord. He's under the wrong influences, Lord. But he's yours. He's yours. I gave him to you. And I gave him to you to use for your glory. That's what they did by faith. Faith cost Moses' parents the absence of a son. The ability to read him those Bible stories, to remind him when he was 16, to keep him from the ways of Egypt. It cost them. In verse 24, we learn that faith cost Moses prestige, the prestige of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In verse 25, we read that faith cost Moses affliction because he associated with the slaves of Egypt, the Jews. Verse 25 again, he made a choice against the passing pleasures of sin. He could have indulged. He could have been part of that great Egyptian society. My dad used to say that the greatest problem with sin is the fact that when it first introduces itself, it is seductive, it is pleasurable. If it didn't have this pleasurable aspect, no one would fall. You know, why do you break a diet? Because the brownie is saying, you can have momentary pleasure. I know one friend of mine used to say, hmm, a moment on the lips, forever on the hips. But it's like this slave trafficker. It seduces, it gives pleasure temporarily in order to enslave, impoverish, and withhold. By faith, we understand the true nature of sin. This is only momentary, but faith is an eternal choice. Faith cost Moses all the treasure of Egypt, verse 27. Moses could have enjoyed the very best Egypt had to offer, 
the, the best housing, the best neighborhood, the best college, the best food as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Faith cost Moses the wrath of Pharaoh. Moses had to make the hard choice to not be liked, to not be favored, to not be wanted by Pharaoh. He endured the wrath of Pharaoh going back into the court over nine times to say, you must release the children of God. Let my people go. And to invoke the power of God against the rebellion of Pharaoh to God. You know, I don't know about you. I don't like to go places where I'm not wanted. It is the most uncomfortable thing to go to a wedding or a funeral or a meeting where you know you're not liked. And I've had to do that. That's been my experience. Moses had to do that in one of the most powerful places on earth. Faith cost Israel a lamb, verse 28. Those who sacrificed a lamb, who, who took a lamb out of their flock and killed that lamb and covered the threshold of their door with the blood of the lamb, were spared from the wrath of God when God's wrath was visited upon Egypt. Those without the blood of the lamb suffered a greater loss, the loss of the firstborn child, destruction of their firstborn. Faith cost Israel discomfort and drama. Verse 29, they had to leave Egypt. They were pursued by Egyptian armies and they had to walk through the Red Sea. I was going through a trial. It was bad. Have you ever had a trial and the moment you pray, it gets worse? And you're like, wait, <laughs> I prayed. So let's get better. So you pray again and then it gets like worse. And you're like, Lord, am I praying the wrong way or am I not to pray at all? And the Lord says, just keep praying, just keep praying, just keep praying. But I was going through a trial and it kept getting worse. And I remember Dave Sylvester called me on the phone and I just told him everything. He, he, you know how it is. People just call you at the wrong time. I don't care if you're with progressive insurance. You need to hear what I'm going through right now. I don't care what you're selling. Let me tell you what's going on. And he happened to call at that moment and he starts laughing, which was not appreciated. And he said to me, oh, Cheryl, don't you know God always builds the drama? You know, God is the best storyteller. His stories and our stories become his story are full of plot twists and suspense and drama so that the deliverance is so great, so noticeable that we never, ever forget. And again, we're told over again that these all received a good testimony. It gives us a story to tell. 48 Hours used to have um, certain uh, programs that were different than 
than the regular ones of finding the murderer. But they were called Live to Tell About It. And it was people who went through these incredible things and then gave the, the story and how they survived. And it's like all these like amazing survival stories. But that's what we get, the live to tell about it. I made it through this. I walked through the Red Sea. Others tried to come through. Their wheels got stuck. They had better chariots, better equipment. They were aggressive. They were fast. I was slow. But they got rutted and they drowned in that same trial that I just walked through to the other side by faith. By faith. Faith cost Rahab her identity, her former lifestyle, her city, her home. Faith always involves a costly choice. Always. Faith also always contains a crucible. And the crucible is the refining of our faith. Faith that is never tested is worthless. I grew up in the home of Chuck Smith. My nightly routine was my father coming in, sitting on my bed, telling me a Bible story and then praying with me overnight. We made up our own prayer that we repeated. None of that, now I lay me down to sleep stuff. No, I came up with my own prayer. And my dad memorized that prayer. And he would say it, and I would repeat it after him every night. Do you know something crazy? I said that prayer after him every night, and I never memorized it. And he did. He took my words and memorialized them. And even at the end of his life, he could still repeat that prayer that he prayed with me every night. I say all this because I think I had one of the best upbringings ever. I loved this church. I still do. I love this church. And I remember when they were building, I was here. I used to be at this church six out of seven nights a week. Sunday night was my dad's Bible study through the Bible. Monday night was Greg Glory. Tuesday night was the night I wasn't here. Wednesday night was the Surf Fellowship. Thursday night was my dad's through uh, Bible teaching. Friday night was Maranatha movies. Saturday night was the Maranatha concerts, and I was here, and I loved it. I loved it. This was the place where the cute guys were and the word of God was spoken. It was the combo for me. I have to say it was the combo. But when I went away to college, to a Christian college, they brought up objections to the Bible that I never heard in all my years in public school. Never was I so challenged as I was at a Christian college where the New Testament professor started us out with the canonization of the Bible. Can you really trust it? And what he did is he tried to plant seeds of doubt about how we got the scriptures because once you doubt how we got the scriptures, 
you're going to doubt the scriptures. So this is what he did. Hath God said. Sound familiar? It's exactly what Satan said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Hath God said. Then he denied the power of God. Because I was always taught that you either obey the word or you will die spiritually. And this professor had the audacity to say, you will not die. And then he said, I can tell you what things Jesus actually said and what he didn't say. What Jesus actually did and what he didn't do. The word of God, mm -mm, it's not trustworthy. You have to lean on me. I was so angry. And the rest of the kids are like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, like lemmings going off a cliff. And I was like, no, 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 no. This is wrong. I called my dad. Tell me about the canonization. And that's when he introduced me to Don Stewart, who would call me every week and say, all right, Cheryl, what's your Bible question for today? So see, he got his start for pastor's perspective by me. I was asking the questions. And that's when my faith, my faith, even though I was at such a shaky point, that my faith began to be refined. I was melted down. I was thrown around. I was pressed out of measure. I had a doubt and another doubt. And I remember looking up at night and saying, God, are you real? Can you be trusted? Is this your word of God? And I came out. I I left that college. I went to UCI knowing that Jesus Christ was Lord, and this is undoubtedly the authoritative, true, absolute word of God, which I could build my life on. Test it. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. That word if is actually since it is necessary. Better translation. You have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found, don't you like that, fire. I've never said it like that before, but it was fun. Though it is tested by, say it with me, fire. Some of you did, and it was fun. Some of you missed out on a really good time may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. True faith will always be tested Faith that is never tested by doubt or deficits or difficulties, disasters, disease or denunciations is not faith. Faith will always be tested. There will always be a crucible. There will always be a test. There will always be a place to choose what Jesus says, to walk in what the promises of God, as opposed to unbelief, as opposed to falling prey. There will always be a crucible 
always. George MacDonald, a famous English writer, once said that an honest doubt is one of the greatest steps to genuine faith. Your faith needs to be strong enough to stand up to the doubts and questions of this world and say, I believe. I know in whom I have believed. And I am fully persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. It is by the crucible of faith that our faith is turned to something greater than gold, something imperishable, something invaluable. It is not wishful hoping. It is not self-determination. It is not mind control. It is not supreme optimism. Real faith, faith that is much more precious than gold, will always contain a crucible, a time of testing. Moses went through the crucible of rejection, reproach of the Messiah, Passover, God's wrath, the Red Sea surrounded by mountains with enemies bearing down. Rahab went through the crucible of receiving the Jewish spies with peace, of having her home destroyed, her city destroyed, her income destroyed, and assimilating into a new people. Gideon went through the crucible of the Midianite aggression, oppression, and tyranny. Barak went through the oppression, domination, and battle crucible. Jephthah went through the crucible of rejection and war. Samson went through the crucible of betrayal, failure, folly, capture, weakness, blindness, slavery. David went through the crucible of exile, rejection, and betrayal from his own countrymen. Samuel went through the crucible of corrupt leadership, a corrupt king, and a Philistine attack. But it was through the crucible, through the trials, the tribulation, the deficit, the difficulties, the failure, that faith was forged, fortified, and seen. Faith will have a crucible. Others went through the crucible of torture without deliverance. Trials of mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonments, stonings, sawn in two. That is a reference to Isaiah the prophet, who um, Jewish historians tell us was sawn in half by Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. The crucible of temptation, the crucible of being slain with a sword, Others, were told, went through the crucible of wandering about in sheepskin and goatskins. Some believe that this is a reference to John the Baptist, who went about in camelskin, who was imprisoned and murdered by King Herod. Crucible of destitution, crucible of affliction, crucible of tormenting. They went through this crucible. They endured by faith. They were enabled, not exempted, but enabled 
to endure, to say, you know what? As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar, this scary, scary man who had a fiery furnace right there, they said, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship you nor the gods that you have set up. We will only worship the Lord our God. These men were fully ready to go through the crucible and not receive deliverance. Ready for the crucible because it's through the crucible that faith is evidenced, that faith is purified, and that faith becomes more precious than gold. Faith wins its crown through the cost in the crucible, the reward of faith. Listen to James 1.12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, or the man who goes through the crucible. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, whom the Lord has promised to those who love him. Faith enables us to persevere to the crown. God always crowns faith. This is the venue God uses to reward his people. He can't do it on the basis of our righteousness because it's like filthy rags. So he does it on the basis of our choice for faith, on the basis of the crucible we've been through for faith, and on the basis of the fact that we believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, the only Son of God. This is the faith he crowns. This is the faith he blesses. This is the faith he works through. Faith crowns us with right choices. Faith crowns us with victory. Faith subdues kingdoms. It obtains promises. It stops the mouths of lions. These are the crowns of faith. Faith quenches the violence of fire. Faith saves from the sword. Faith makes the weak strong. Faith makes us valiant in battle. Faith turns to flight the enemies of armies. Faith raises the dead to life, and faith endures testing, trials, and the crucible of faith. Faith. And what is this faith that we're talking about? Again, it's not optimism. It's not just, I have a greater power than you do. No, it is simply this, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who came to earth and took the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and is risen again from the dead and has proclaimed all your sins paid in full. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Faith has an objective. And the objective of faith is Christ. 
The word Christ, again, is the Greek word Messiah. I think sometimes we need to substitute Messiah for Christ because we don't have the same context. We don't um, see it the same way. We, we see it as a last name. We too glibly say it. But what the author of Hebrews wants you to know is Jesus is Messiah. He's Messiah. He's Messiah. He's Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's Jesus, Messiah. That's why Paul uses the term Christ or Messiah more than even the name Jesus, because he wants all of his readers, all of those to whom his epistles were written to know this is the Messiah. Jesus alone is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus alone is the one that you need. He is not just the Messiah to the Jews. He is our Messiah because we needed a savior. We looked for a savior in a relationship. If only I could get the right man then my life would be blissful. And then all of us marry the wrong man. Mr. Wonderful is still out there wandering the streets somewhere looking for us. And we got Mr. Needs Improvement. We look We look for the Messiah in our education. Once I get this degree, I'll feel fulfilled. It's everything I've ever needed. And we get that degree. Mm -mm. There are those who think that the Messiah is in a perfect body shape. And they either say, well, I'll never have the Messiah because I'll never lose weight or I'll never work out. Or they try so hard by starvation and exercise to reach this goal of finding the Messiah. There are people who think the Messiah is a political leader. But my dad said, every politician is corrupt. Every politician is corrupt. He said, the minute you put the word politician into the equation. There's corruption. Even the blessed Ronald Reagan, everyone is corrupt because they're men, because they're men of this world. There is only one Messiah, and that Messiah is Jesus. He is the one that we all need. He is the one we are looking for constantly that our hearts are restless for. He is the Savior. He is the one that our hearts long for, that we've been looking for. He is the Messiah. You know, I just want to challenge you. When you read the word Christ, put the word Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. You need to hear it. He is the one. These Old Testament heroes and heroines accomplished these extraordinary feats, not by self-effort, not by perfect behavior, not by abiding by the law, not by the sacrifices, not by the rituals, not by the feasts, not by going to the temple. The common denominator that accomplished these extraordinary wonders through ordinary people 
was faith in God's promise of a Messiah. That's what he's saying. These Old Testament saints all looked forward to the promise of a Messiah. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, the promise, the Messiah. This is the promise. They didn't receive it, but they looked forward to it. And just knowing that God would send his son as Messiah, looking forward to that promise, enabled, empowered, worked in them. If these saints did these amazing feats by faith in the promise to come, then the potential of our faith in the Messiah is even greater. That's why Jesus said, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, if you believe in me this much, you can say to that mountain, be removed, and it will be removed. Nothing will stand in your way. Jesus said to Martha, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of God who is coming into the world. Later, when Jesus was being led to the tomb of Lazarus, he said, roll away the stone. And Martha said, no, 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 no. Lord, he's been in there for four days. There is such the stench of death. Please don't move that stone. It's bad enough that he died. But really, you're just making the situation worse. Jesus turned to her and said, Martha, didn't I say that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What Jesus is about to do is because of Martha's faith. Did she believe Lazarus was going to rise again? No. She thought he was already deteriorated. She was trying to stop Jesus from even moving the stone away. She didn't think that Jesus would bring life from the worst possible scenario in her existence. But Jesus said, because of your faith, what was her faith? You are the son of God, the Messiah who has come into the world. That's our faith. That's the objective of our faith. That's the power of our faith. It, that's the faith. That's what we need to believe. And just on that premise, it is what we believe by which Jesus can raise the dead to life. It's on that that Jesus can take us to the worst possible thing that has ever taken place in our lives and take away the stench and take away the death and remove the stone and bring life from the ugliest, stinkiest, grossest place, greatest disappointment, greatest heartache. Jesus can bring life to it because he is the Messiah, the son of God who has come into the world. The Old Testament saints looked forward to that. We know it. We have read it. We have felt it. We know it. This, this is the power. This is the power. Faith is not a force we harness to exempt us from hardship. 
Faith is God working in us through the work and word of the Messiah, Jesus. What is humanly impossible, giving a witness and a testimony to the world through our lives of his reality, his glory, and his goodness. But my friends, true faith always involves a choice, a cost, and a crucible. Perhaps you've thought because of the cost or because of the crucible or because of the choice, this is because I don't have enough faith. No, not at all. Mm -mm. Get that out of your mind. That's the devil. You are at this place, this choice, this cost, this crucible, because you have faith. Because you have faith. It has brought you to this trial, to this deficit. Not to fall, but to obtain a good testimony. You are at this place that Jesus might do the extraordinary in your ordinary lives. I love that, and I always make reference to it because it's one of my favorite um, events in the Bible. In John chapter 6, when the multitude is there and they're hungry, and Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we going to buy enough food for all these to eat? And Philip says, Lord, even if I went out, worked for a whole year and gave you all those wages, and we use that to buy bread, it would not be enough to feed this multitude. Deficit of time, deficit of money, deficit of resources. And Jesus, it says this, and this is one of my favorite, favorite scriptures. He said this, for he himself knew what he would do. In your trial, in your crucible, in your choice, in your cost, Jesus himself knows what he's going to do. This is your crucible. This is the testimony. I remember when one of my daughters was not even walking with the Lord, a friend of mine called me and she said, she's making her testimony. I said, I never wanted her to have one. This is their testimony. Our children, we have to give them to the Nile. But we're not giving them to the Nile, we're giving them to Jesus that they might be saved from the Nile River. They might go into Pharaoh's house. They might do every, be, go every place you never wanted them to go. Learn everything you never wanted them to learn. But it is God grooming them to associate with the reproaches of Christ rather than the riches of this world. It's faith. It's faith that's going to help you to make the right choices. It's faith that is going to help you to pay the right cost. It is faith that is going to bring you through the crucible and give you in the stead, in the place, across the forgiveness of our sins and a crown, an association with the King of heaven, a commendation from Jesus himself. As we're told in 2 Timothy 4.8, 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2, 10, and 3, 11. 
a purified faith, a faith that has paid the cost and gone through the crucible, is more precious than gold that perishes. Faith is the greatest treasure that we can have in earth. And when we get to heaven, it is faith that furnishes our mansion. It is faith that will provide the rewards that we will receive. Someday, someday, our faith will be sight. And the realities that we choose to believe today will be our surroundings and completely and utterly undeniable. But now is the time to choose costly faith, to go through the crucible by faith, to win the crown that Jesus the Messiah has prepared for each one of us, something that is better than gold. It's interesting we sang It is well with my soul. But we didn't sing the last verse. And I was so excited when they started singing it. I was like, oh, and here comes the verse. But they stopped. The Lord having had something better for us. Right? Just like the Old Testament saints, they came up to the point, but we get the last verse. And this is it. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds roll back like a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. There will be a day when faith will be sight. When all these realities that we believe today will be utterly undeniable. But even so, Even so, right now, it is by faith. It is well with my soul. Will you stand up? We'll save that for a second. But thank you. That's really sweet. Lord, I want to pray for my sisters. Lord, there are some in the crucible right now. There are some who are paying the cost right now. If you're paying the cost of faith, Right now, will you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Oh, blessed sisters. If there's some of you, you're saying, Cheryl, I'm in the crucible right now. I'm in the crucible of faith. Will you raise your hands? Okay. If there's anyone with a crown of faith, please raise your hand. (laughs) Hallelujah. There's hope. I want to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for those who have made a choice. Lord, they've made the choice to pay whatever the cost in order to know you, Jesus, the Messiah, because you are worth more than anything this world has to offer, because you have given them promises, Lord. Lord, as you prayed for Peter, that his faith would not fail. I pray for my sisters who are in this crucible, who are paying this cost, that their faith would not fail. And that when they come through, Luke 22, if you want to look it up later, when they come through this crucible, that you will use them as you use Peter to strengthen the brethren and the sisters, that you would give them a testimony that they would not trade for all the tea in China, that Lord, they would hold this, that they would love you more, 
that they would believe to the bedrock of their being that you are the Messiah, the hope for all the world. Give them endurance and through this company of women and I stand among them that you might show the crown of faith, the glory of the extraordinary because we have believed that you are Jesus, the Messiah, who has come into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.